and welcome to How to Grow a Pod, the podcast about podcasting from the book How to Start and Grow a Successful Podcast by me, Jilly Smith. This is where you'll find the almost unedited interviews by the pioneers of podcasting, the hobbyists and the pros who feature in the book. This week, a bumper masterclass of an episode with Ollie Mann, who, with Helen Zaltzman, was one of the earliest pioneers in podcasting with Ask Me This. Since then, he's presented The Week Unwrapped and The Modern Man and made real his teenage dream of becoming a BBC radio broadcaster. He tells me about getting in early, making it up as he went along, using his media savvy and creative brain to have a load of fun along the way and get to a point where he can pay his mortgage and feed his kids as a podcaster. It's always difficult to know where to start with this stuff because the truth is messy and complicated and goes further back than... We love messy and complicated. Okay. Be as messy as you like. The brief messy complicated version is that I wrote a play in 2006 (laughs) and took it to Edinburgh Festival and it was a play about blogs. And because it was a play about blogs, a lot of the press that I was attracting for it was from bloggers and podcasters. And I had sort of heard of podcasting in 2006, but I don't think I'd ever downloaded one. But I got a heads up as to how easy it was to make one because podcasters were coming to me to interview me about my play and they were doing it in the beer garden of the um, underbelly and it was like a guy with a ponytail and a mini disc recorder and a clip-on mic. (laughs) And I thought, oh, okay, is that how easy it is? If you can do it, then I can do it. And... I could see that the people who were doing it then really were basically nerds. Um, They were pioneers. I don't mean it in a dismissive way at all. But they were literally making podcasts about how to use Windows. You know, that was the kind of thing people were doing podcasts about. And I thought there's a niche here for independent podcasters to match the efforts that the likes of The Guardian were doing at the time. So it was just in the era where Ricky Gervais had got his million pound deal for his podcast through The Guardian. And so I thought, okay, so there's these big guns that are trying to enter into this and turn it into a a race. And then there's everybody else, and the independents seem to be doing these slightly nerdy things. There's room for an entertainment thing. This all sounds very, very, like, obvious, but you have to remember it was before YouTube as well. So basically what I was doing was I was 25 years old, and I was was doing what a 25-year-old now would do if they were on TikTok, except then it was podcasting. Yeah. So it was driven by... You know, you wanting to be out there, being controlled by the commissioners, as it were. If you'd wanted to be on radio at that time, uh, you'd have had to impress certain people and got to know certain people. You'd have had to go through a threshold. Whereas what you were seeing was an opportunity to do it yourself. Yeah, an experiment and be shit. That was the other thing as well. Like, it was very obvious that... It wasn't just that if I if I oh if I wanted to be on radio I'd have to impress a commissioner. I mean yes, but it wouldn't have ever occurred to me that I'd ever be good enough to even get in a room with a commissioner. And I like hospital yeah. radio just felt a bit too low grade. Um and community radio didn't yeah. exist. And I didn't see how else you could get into radio, but this was a way to practice being on radio without being on radio. Um, so there was that as well, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's very Edinburgh fringe. <laughs> exactly. It's it's very exactly. fringe, isn't it? It's it's exact. It's the tryout yeah. culture. And um, then I thought, okay, well, who could I do a show with? And I remembered working with Helen uh, on student radio when we were both at Oxford, and we always had a really good repartee. And um, I always just felt good when I was talking to her; like it just felt natural and easy and straightforward, and the comedy was. 
it just came forth naturally without being too forced. And uh, what happened is she'd had a student radio show and I was the guest on it. I was the kind of second fiddle. It had always been fun <laughs> and no one was listening, obviously, like 10 people were listening, but it did have an FM license in Oxford. So those 10 people were getting in good quality. Um, and, um, yeah, I just, I just thought, well, that was fun. Let's, maybe she'd do that because I knew that she was doing weird jobs. She was proofreading and stuff and helping people write their books. And she was working from home and she just had a slightly mm. odd... I had a job. I was working at ITV, but she didn't have a job. She was self-employed, and I knew she could do with an extra string to her bow. So I just thought, well, would you do it? I asked her if she'd do a podcast with me, and she said yes. And everything happened quite organically, really. There were some tricks along the way that I alluded to before. The the, the publicity stunts. They, you, you, you say that you worked in television and radio mm. later. There's a sort of a media... Uh, awareness isn't there I did an interview with the, my dad wrote a porno mm. team as well there's a lot of TV radio producing tricks that people use you know that you have to bring attention to what you're doing however you know crap it may be at, at that time you've got to start thinking about how to frame stuff so that you can bring an audience to it those publicity stunts in Luxembourg tell us about that so the show had been running for a year um, and during that first year I was doing everything I can could to try and get people to come to the show so uh, the, the the job delegation was always quite clear actually Helen did the editing as in the the button pressing editing although I very much had a role in creatively having a pass at it she spent hours in front of the computer pressing the buttons my job was to do the publicity and to try and get an audience to the show and at the time then uh, so we're talking late 2007 I think I was working at the culture show for the BBC. That was my job. I was a researcher at the culture show. And so um, I had... My, my job was to look into new trends, because I was the young one, <laughs> that the culture show might want to tap into. So I was aware of, like, the latest bands and, you know, the coolest new whatever artists and things. This was in the era where, in terms of social media, MySpace was just becoming a thing. Kate Nash had just managed to break out of that, Lily Allen, all of that stuff. And so... My attempt to try and get an audience that I thought would like the show, because at the time we were in our mid-twenties, we were kind of aiming at like us as sixth formers, so we were thinking about what would an 18-year-old who has a curiosity about the world and a slightly sardonic sense of humour, what would they like? My job was let's try and get some teenagers to download the show. So I'd piggyback on the back of lots of MySpace profiles of like the kooks and people. <laughs> and I'd, I'd reach out to all of their friends on MySpace and tell them about our MySpace page. So how do you do that? Because, you know, that's still possible to do. You could do that on people's Instagram pages, on Twitter, all sorts of stuff. But I mean, did you literally kind of go into the kooks fan page and say, follow no i think i individually groomed them i'm trying to remember because it was 14 years ago and the technology has changed and when was the last wow. time anyone went on myspace i don't know how it works but i i found <laughs> the whatever 200 people from the brit school that like the kooks and i i targeted each of them individually I either sent them a message or invited them to join our page or something i can't remember but yeah sort of cultivated wow. a group that way i don't think this was actually as it turned out a particularly huge way to get the show off the ground i think maybe only accounted for about five percent of our audience but it was something i was doing and I suppose that was a media, a media yeah. savviness that you were talking about. There was That was present in that technique. Uh, I was doing a weekly mail shot as well, so that everyone that I knew would get an email, including people who worked in radio and stuff. You know, I'd copy it, I'd BCC in people with professional email addresses that I'd accrued along the way, as if they'd just been added, you know, sort of carelessly, but I was targeting them too. Um, and then at the end of the year, we were like, okay, we need a publicity stunt to actually 
get people to give us coverage in the mainstream media. And being a researcher in the mainstream media, I'd sort of noticed what you needed to fall into place to allow that to happen. One was good timing for a press release. Um, so we decided that we'd target the first week of January. So like January the 3rd, January the 4th, where everyone's just come back off Christmas and there's nothing to write about. And lazy journalists just want something easy. Um, then I thought the other thing you need is that press release, not just to have some facts in it, but to actually spoon feed reporters with content that they can use immediately. So we thought, right, we'll do a video. And YouTube had kind of just happened at this point. We'll do a video and we'll do the press release. We'll put ourselves forward for interview. We'll have some facts in there that people didn't know. Um, and we'll present ourselves as experts and we'll land it on their desk on January the 5th. And so that's what we did. So all of that was behind the stunt, which was we realised that it was very hard to break into the iTunes chart in the UK um, simply because of the big entrants that were around in Britain, The Guardian, The Times, the BBC. Um, but theoretically, the whole system was set up in a completely um, agnostic way where anyone, whether an independent producer or a big broadcaster, should be able to crash into the iTunes charts. And so we realised that the smaller the country the more opportunity there was to cheat the algorithms. And so we realised that Luxembourg, at the time, weirdly, iTunes only had about 10 international locations, and Luxembourg was one of the 10. And the reason Luxembourg was one of the 10 was because of tax reasons, because Apple's HQ is based in Luxembourg for Europe. Um, but it's literally a, a post box on a street in Luxembourg. And so we thought it would be funny to go to that post box and petition iTunes to get into the chart and spend the day in Luxembourg drumming up publicity to try and get people to download our show. And so we did. So we went to Luxembourg, we filmed the whole thing, um, we handed out free biscuits, we went on the English language breakfast radio show. I mean, it's all surprisingly easy to make yourself a celebrity in Luxembourg. <laughs> um, and it worked. I mean, we got to number three, I think, in the Luxembourg charts overnight. Um, and that was a great sort of end to the video, which I then spent Christmas cutting together and we then sort of mailed out with our press release in January saying, we've cracked Luxembourg. And of course, it was just had everything because it was like a novelty funny story. It was about the underdog. But also, and also we'd filmed it in quite a savvy way as well. So there was, I mean, I, I say filmed it in a savvy way. It looks like it was filmed on a toaster. I mean, it's fucking terrible. You have to remember this is way before smartphone cameras. <laughs> so I filmed it on like an old mini DV and it looks appalling. But nonetheless, we had like big posters with our branding in it. We gave out the URL many times in the video. We knew what we were doing from that point of view. Um, and then we just presented ourselves for interview as if we're experts. We know something about technology that you don't know. We know how to crack the podcast charts. And that felt like a very... Uh, you know, interesting piece of news content in January 2008. And it was that easy. I mean, we yeah. found ourselves in the Daily Telegraph, uh, on Sky News, Five Live, I think. And suddenly you're an expert in the field and you're the go-to person. The way that the media works is that once they've got you on their books as their go-to person, you're asked for a comment on anything that ever has the word podcast in again. That's right. We became internet experts. Aren't you? I mean, you're still. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but but podcast experts as well and podcast pioneers and there's this wonderful idea of the democratization of the media through the podcast not sure it's actually that way anymore but at that time it really was and there's this kind of hero version you know it's not just the underdog but there's the hero there's the pioneering hero the the difference between you and the next person is that you actually got off your backsides and went to Luxembourg you did it you know a lot of people might talk about that idea but there's this idea that if you do something, you break through that there's there's that opportunity for everyone, but only very few people will actually 
be bothered to do I mean, it. A, we had media contacts and that media now how to get our story to people. Um, and B, we had enough disposable income, and it wasn't very much looking at it now, but it was a lot for a 25-year-old of spending £500 to do the publicity stunt and spending my Christmas cutting the video about it. So that isn't it genuinely isn't available <laughs> yeah. for everyone. But it's amazing how many people could do something like that and don't. You're right. It's available for a lot of the kind of people mm, who want to get yeah. into podcasting. It's a huge swathe of people. It's interesting because it is about timing and it's about confidence and it's about, you know, doing something that everybody talks about. Um, do you think it would be possible to do it now and get the same kind of coverage? You'd have to be a lot better. I mean, <clears throat> there was also, as well as being part of the hero thing, the flip side of that is being kind of punky. We were kind of punky. And actually not just because we were making it at home and because there were swear words in it and we talked about sex. That was quite punky. But also we were punky because we really didn't look like the other 25-year-olds who were in the mainstream media <laughs> at the time. So, I, I mean, yeah. Helen and I would go for uh, meetings in production companies where, you know, some junior researcher had found our podcast and thought we might be good on the telly or something. And you'd go into these meeting rooms and there'd always be a whiteboard. And the whiteboard would say, you know, George Lamb, Alex Zane, people like that. And then at the bottom it would say, Helen Ollie, question mark. And it was kind of like, who are these kind of like fat, posh Jewish kids? Where do they fit in what we're doing? Um, that in itself, even though now that doesn't seem particularly punky because you've got, uh, you know, Greg James doing breakfast on Radio 1. Then it did because there was this very slick kind of boring uh looks driven culture around 20 somethings in the media then you know vernon k was a big star and we were doing something very different that made us feel that made us feel punky too like our very kind of slightly geeky intellectual thing was was punky so i think all of that belongs to a certain time and place which isn't relevant anymore. You wouldn't just be able to say, we've got a podcast and you should listen to it. You need to have a really good reason for people to listen to that podcast. Yeah, <clears throat> and of course the, the market for podcasts is now really flooded. I mean, you can't. it's a very different world. I don't know if you could even do punky anymore. It's about something quite different. That Wild West thing has gone. It's, uh, I mean, the, the My Dad Wrote a Porno team said that if you're listening to a podcast this now that hasn't been sponsored you're kind of thinking mm, <coughs> you know they're not they're mm. not up there which is extraordinary because i would imagine that it took you quite some time to get sponsored and it was the idea that nobody was paying you to do this it was a passion project you know these two young punks kind of doing their own thing making it up as they went along that was the aspiration now you know instagram is about you know the aspiration is your perfect life or whatever but in those days it wasn't i mean you, there was this background kind of career ambition absolutely but genuinely if you'd have told me you're never going to get a radio show out of this you're never going to make any money out of this do you still want to carry on i would have said yes because what i could see was happening was we were building traction with the kind of community we wanted to reach and people liked our show and we were filling a need that they had that other content wasn't giving them and genuinely that was part of it whereas now there really is a podcast for whatever you want and there's six podcasts for whatever you want. 
Yeah. And and I just happened to pump, bump into your teenage diary oh, yeah. on Radio 4 last week. And it's clear from your diary that you always wanted to be this person. You always planned to be the kind of the, the radio presenter, the your own person. It's almost like you kind of become the person that you already were. Uh, I mean, I always had a latent ambition to be on mic, but I was quite nervous and shy about that. Uh, in a way that most people are in their sort of late teens, early 20s, and pretended that I would be satisfied working behind the scenes on stuff for about 10 years. Like, it wasn't until 2011 or something that I went full-time freelance broadcasting. And that wasn't because the opportunity wasn't there. It was just a certain reticence to really properly put myself out there. And podcasting gave me the confidence, building up an audience gave me the confidence to approach people who worked in radio and say, yeah, people are interested in what I have to say and how we're saying. Yeah, yeah. It's quite different from some of the people I'm uh, interviewing who are Mm. niche podcasters, Uh, Susie Buttress and her birdwatching, for example, you know, people who are driven by their passion for a hobby. Um, It's quite different. Yours is a drive to kind of fulfil your own destiny. Although uh, it's changed. So as I've kind of become more comfortable, I guess, with being a podcaster, first and foremost, and realising the power of the medium, there are things that I've done that aren't about bringing a large audience, but are about cover. So on The Modern Man I'm talking about now, which is one of my other podcasts, which are about covering stories that I think are really important or that have a kind of public service value. But I always try and do those stories, whether it's about, you know, drugs or mental health or rape or whatever the subject is. I always try and do those stories in a way that appeals to the most people that I think I can get to those stories. So when you talk about niche podcasters, I kind of think... It's great to have a niche. I mean, for example, I'm interested in musical theatre. I've always wanted to do a musical theatre podcast. I probably will one day. When I do it, it won't just be for other people that like musical theatre. It'll be for as many people as possible who might be interested in downloading that podcast. And that's always been my approach. And I just think there's nothing... you, You can still have your niche and you can still reach your specific audience that would like you but there's 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 no reason to try and make that audience as small as possible that's a really perverse thing to do because the internet is making it possible for that audience to be quite significant and so i always try really hard to make everything accessible and open for people and for a long time i mean for the first eight years of answer me this we introduced martin for example on the show every time he came on because I was aware that it's weird to have this voice that's suddenly echoey and who is he and why does he have an echo and why have you got a sidekick? So we'd always make a point whenever you started talking, ah, oh, Martin. And literally, it, it, it took a decade for us to feel like, okay, the audience get the joke now. But I really think it's important to, to think about that yeah. first five minutes and how you're appealing to people and to appeal as many people as possible. Because you never know who might like something. So let's talk about some of the practicalities of making the podcast. We record for, for a let's say now 45 minute version of the show which is roughly what we put out every month we record for about two hours two hours 15 minutes so the majority of that goes on the cutting room floor instantly and by the time we're recording we've already put together a structure and an order that has taken you know half a day to kind of plow through our emails and choose the questions and then research and we've thought really carefully about where everything goes there's an, there's like a and i think this is really helpful in podcasting there's a a secret formula to the show that hopefully isn't obvious to listeners they wouldn't be able to explain what it is but there's a feeling there's a rhythm to where each section goes and the kind of content you get in each section 
broadly speaking, the dirty stuff goes at the end of the show or at the end of the intro just before the jingle. The sort of more cerebral stuff goes roughly smack bang in the middle of the show so that you're half an hour in before we have a really in-depth discussion about Renaissance painting or whatever it is. Um, And so there's this balance the whole way through and there's a balance of who's answering the questions. You know, Helen has her areas, etymology and history, and I have mine kind of pop culture and stuff. And that is all kind of interspersed. All that's very carefully thought through. Then Helen does her first pass at the edit, which takes her half a day to go through and send me a version that's about an hour and 15 minutes long. And then I cut 15 minutes out. And I do that by listening three times. And I listen on headphones. And I can't tell you how important I believe that is to make a good podcast. I take it. I take it away from a computer. I live in the countryside and I go for a walk through a field. And I listen to it on headphones as if I was walking my dog or walking to work or getting the bus. And I listen as a listener in headphones. And I, th- I honestly think if you try and edit at your desk, it just isn't the same because I don't understand how the brain works. But when I, once I start listening for a second time, I see the images from when I was walking around the first time. I was like, oh, yeah, when I heard this bit, I was standing at that bush. You know, oh, that's the bit where I stopped and sat on the bench. So I know that that experience is quite visceral of being with this companionship in your ears. And that's what our listeners will be doing. I listen as a listener and I just listen once. Then I listen again a second time as a listener, still walking around only on my third pass do I sit down at a computer and write edit notes and I do them in like a paper style out here in here out here in here I don't touch an editing program it's all on Microsoft Word and I make about 100 notes and I send them to Helen she does all of those and then does another pass again so that's the editing process for answering this and we've done that since day one which is insane I was going to ask if, you, if you've done it since day one, because that time equals money. I talked to Ira Glass about how long they take to put up a show together. And I forget what the ratio is, but it's like 12 hours to three yeah. minutes. <laughs> yeah. Well, they've got uh, a few more staff. If you're paid to do that, they've got, they've got so many staff and they've got so much that everyone is paid to do it. Most podcasters who are going to be reading this book and listening to this podcast are not going to have that. I haven't got that time. I, I record to time. Because I, I'm not paid a huge amount to be a podcaster and certainly not for cooking the books, which is the only one that I've made where I haven't been paid. It's my own. So I have to do it to time because otherwise I'm spending a whole day and not getting an income on it. And I just can't afford to do that. And, you know, I'm of a certain age where I'm, you know, I'm uh, earning enough money from other things to be able to pay my mortgage. But people coming into it certainly wouldn't be able to do that. And in terms of the democracy of the podcast, over recording is one of those things where you just have to say you you haven't got the time to do that. You're right, of course, that time is money. But if you're valuing your time over your listeners' time, then I think you're making a mistake because your listeners' time is more important than yours because they'll listen and realise, oh, this isn't worth my time. Or you get it right at at source. But no one gets it right the first time, do they? I mean, you might be able to get it right now because you've been doing it for long enough. It has given you a fantastic platform on which to build a a, a very wide ranging career. You're on television, you're on radio, you are doing lots of different podcasts. So you are guests on radio shows. Um, In terms of monetizing the podcast, is that how you've done it? We'll go into the beer money in a minute. But in terms of kind of creating a career, has that sort of worked for you? From a business perspective, because we started so long ago, it was all experimentation. Our first uh, stumbling into a business model was because we were forced to. 
what happened in around about 2008 is the podcast host that we'd initially signed on to me this up with gave us a bill which unlike our usual bill which was seven dollars or something for a month was i think a thousand dollars a thousand one thousand two hundred dollars or something for a month of hosting so we got that and we're like what the hell why has that happened look through the small print and it turned out that in 2007 2008 the podcast host still had small print that said it was weird it was basically if you get popular then <laughs> we'll start billing you loads of money and because we're using up lots of their bandwidth and back then memory cost more than it does now so some computer somewhere in you know austin texas was working overtime for us um, and so we had to hunt around and find an alternative podcast host that didn't charge for bandwidth, which turned out to be Libsyn, which is still running now and still doing that. Although, of course, now none of them do. Um, and in the meantime, mm. I had to appeal to the original podcast host and ask for our money back, uh, which in the end we kind of came to a compromise. I think we paid $200 or something. Um, and so I, I, at the time I was like, well, we can't let that happen again because if that happens again, we can't afford to do the show. Um, so... At that point, we were on something like episode 60 or so, so we decided to put our first 30 episodes behind a paywall. So we had a PayPal screen, and people could buy them, and then they get sent a link to a website, which was our website, where they could download them. It wasn't encrypted or secure or anything like that. And it was literally just a way to make sure we had a buffer of 300 quid if that happened again. That was the only reason we started doing it. But we quickly realised there was a benefit. There were lo loads of benefits to doing that. One was our early terrible work was off the internet, and people who were hearing us for the first time weren't downloading episode one, which was obviously appalling. They were downloading episode 40, which was much better. Secondly, once they'd become a fan of the show by listening to episodes 40 through 60, they'd then go back and want to listen to episode one like it was some rare kind of collectible Bob Dylan LP, you know. <laughs> and so there was value to be extracted in them paying for it and feeling like they wanted to get something rare. They were actually appreciating that content, even though it wasn't yeah. very good. And thirdly, we realised there's a revenue stream there, particularly for American listeners. And we realised quickly that Americans want to give you money. I mean, they were writing to us saying, how can we contribute to the show in a way that just wasn't part of our culture at all? And then, as you alluded to earlier, sponsorship came maybe two or three years after that um, and evolved. So what year are we looking at then? 2012, would um, it be? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, well, we signed a book deal in 2010 with Faber. I know that we wrote a lot of that book when we were on the road making a video series for Visit Britain. So that was our, I think that was our first proper bit of sponsorship. So yeah, 2010. So we've made the show for three years, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So, so all of the economic models have, have changed and evolved as, as the whole thing has progressed. And so yes, in 2010, 2011, yes, my goal was I'll become a renter gob and I can make money out of public appearances and appearing on TV and I can use that leverage to get other people to download my stuff. But that isn't what it is anymore because it's evolved further and I've realised the power of podcasting and I've also yeah. realised the incredible shallowness of telly. I don't really want to be on TV. I never really wanted to be on TV, actually. I wanted to find a platform where I could put out content I found interesting and other people could find it. And I used podcasting to get to a stage where I could get a radio show. And then when I had a radio show, I realised that podcasting is actually a better mechanic in the first place than doing what I really want to do. Because there are so many interfering elements in radio. And then telly is just that times a million. Because even by the time you're sitting on a sofa and able to say what you really want to say, you're at the mercy of the director and who they cut to and what you look like and what your makeup's doing and how long you've got and all of that stuff. Whether they spelt your name correctly. Now, I want to 
use TV and radio to do the things that I find interesting as projects when they come up, when people approach me. Um, but all of my energy goes into podcasting because I think it's the best mechanic, actually, that's been invented for what I really want to do. And it's so satisfying as a kind of entrepreneur, as a sort of self-employed startup, to be able to live, to be able to pay my mortgage, to be able to feed my children from podcasting. Doing that is, is incredible. So that's really interesting. So let's look at that business model. So let's really unpack how you made it into a business. Tell us about the beer money. Well, when I started The Modern Man in 2015, it was a very different setup to Answer Me This. Answer Me This was, me and some mates are going to make a show, and if it makes money one day, great. And if it makes enough money to cover itself, fantastic. And it took basically 10 years before it was making a profit. And now it's the biggest thing I do, but we never could have guessed that at the time. The Modern Man was started as a professional product. We signed up with Acast um, so that we could inject advertising. Uh, I worked on it as a collaboration with a professional producer, Matt Hill, who I work with on other things. And basically, at the beginning, the conversation with him was, do you want me to pay you as my producer, or do you want to go in with me on this as a profit share? Uh, and actually, he originally asked me to pay him, and I persuaded him to take the profit share option. <laughs> but anyway, it is now a profit share, and it's a joint enterprise. So if we don't make any money from advertising and or sponsorship and or live events and or donations, we don't make any money and we can't make the show. And we've created this ridiculously complex show, unlike Answer Me This, which can be recorded remotely in an hour, that has four magazine elements, one of which often includes multiple recordings, and all of which involve other individuals who all get paid. So, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a yeah. huge enterprise for something that actually, because it's quite serious in places, is always going to have a smaller audience than a big mainstream comedy show. So the only way that I thought we'd be able to keep it afloat, really, in times when advertising dried up completely and there were no sponsors, because most of the sponsorship that comes on the show is basically me talking to people and getting them to give us money, and if I can't do that one month for whatever reason, there is none, would be to have a donation set up. And at the time, 2015, there were the platforms that you have now. There was Patreon. But I just thought... I mean, it's, it's a bit of a prejudice, this. I know Americans are the best at podcasting, but I personally find a lot of American podcasts really irritating. Because of the sponsorship or because of, of the actual content? I find them overproduced. I don't like the background plinky-plonky music the whole way through. I don't like the kind of studied casuality rather than genuine off-the-cuff chat. I don't like the corporatization that creeps in from the moment you press play. I don't like the fact that it's often more men than women and to the English ear it's hard to tell them apart because they all sound like American men of the same age. I, I listen to loads of American shows but I do have those problems with lots of them. And I thought, no, I'm doing my own thing. I've always done my own thing and I don't want to be one of these guys going, hey, check out our Patreon. I just don't want to do that. So what's like a sort of basically distinctly British eccentric way to ask for money from a British audience who might be reluctant to give you money? And I came up with beer money myself because I just thought, well, that's it really, isn't it? It's, I've I'd had enough experience now as a podcaster that when I was in the right place, when I was at the Edinburgh Festival or the iTunes Festival or Glastonbury, in the kind of place where people who listened to Answer Me This were, if someone recognised me, they would buy me a beer. They'd come up to me and they'd say thank you so much for giving me the last 10 years of content. I owe you a beer. And I thought, well, that's it. That's what I'm tapping into. If you like this show, if you saw me, you'd buy that's me brilliant. a beer. So buy us a beer. Buy us a beer to say thank you. Yeah. And then we set up a yeah. form that was the price of a, 
pint of beer, but actually it defaults to a recurring monthly payment unless you choose the drop-down menu to make it a one-off payment, and about 50% of people were happy to make that a recurring subscription, effectively. That's amazing. Yeah. Mostly through PayPal, PayPal, although actually it's uh, on a system called Moonclerk, uh, the form that I built for it. Um, but however people want to do it is all welcome. And also, I'm doing the customer service. So if people want to cancel their beer money subscription or they want to amend it, they have to email me. And I then reply. And you can feel their surprise that it's me, which is bizarre because what do they think? Yeah. That we have some South Korean call centre somewhere. <laughs> but when I say, thanks so much for supporting my show, um, how much would you like to amend your payment to... Uh, do you mind me asking what was your favourite episode, Ollie? They was like, oh my God, it's you. I never thought it would be you. Yeah. Uh, and that personal yeah. touch is just, yeah. for me, that's what podcasting's all about. Yeah. And it goes right back to that whole idea that you were talking about earlier, where which is the, the punk thing. You know, it's very low level. It's c- community based. But that sound, that even that has kind of turned into something else. What this is about, it's like a whole bunch of your mates listening to you contributing to you making it happen for you and enjoying your success you're not meteoric you're not you're not one of the big guys who's just sold out and gone to spotify or to or to luminary where we suddenly have to kind of you know pay to 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 listen to you uh, or you know without the adverts you're you're one of us maybe That's although actually it, I, I don't have a problem with that business model moving forward I, I think netflix works really well people accept it i actually do think we're at a stage now where people understand if something is platform exclusive and uh, i've done an audible original and i i think that's fine that that's just for members of audible uh, they knew that right from the beginning i think it's slightly uncomfortable about selling your show having built up an audience to someone um because in tv you get the mechanic of oh itv have cancelled it but netflix have stepped in to fund another series but in podcasting you know it's a bloke with his microphone in his garage that costs fuck all so i mean they could carry on doing the show <laughs> Um, but I think creating yeah. a new product yeah. that's exclusively for a for a particular platform, I actually think the market is ready for that now. Um, but it's interesting that you use the word mates. I mean, I, I, I have chosen to treat it as a strength that I think a lot of people who like my shows basically see me as their clever mate from uni. That's essentially <laughs> the role that I'm in. <laughs> I'm unthreatening yeah. and... I, you know, have some interesting things to tell them in the pub and they understand where I'm coming from and essentially they find me likeable and that's that's the thing. Like, that's the thing that you can that you can use. There's nothing wrong with knowing your strengths and monetizing that, but that, that matesiness is, is part of what people yeah. not only like about downloading my shows, but actually it's, it's the fundamental mechanic I'm using to get them to come on some quite difficult journeys with me on The Modern Man. Um, you know, if I said at the beginning of the show, hey, everyone, we've got an episode about anorexia for you, they would not stick around for that. But because there's 25 minutes of matesy banter, but because um, you're it then telling gets it. you relaxed. And then actually, yes, you are ready to listen to a difficult story about an eating disorder because you can see the relevance to your yeah. life and the kind of people that you like. It's that sort of media gold of authenticity. It's a terrible word and I wish there were a better word, but it is. It's mm. the holy grail, isn't it? And it's not something you can make up. It's something that it's... There are tricks that you can use to make people feel more connected to you. And working as a phone-in host at LBC for four years really helped me hone some of those tricks. And they are teachable skills. You know, using the word you a lot, 
talking a lot about your personal opinion so that people then feel motivated to give their own. I mean, that's the whole point of phoning radio is that they then actually feel so excited to join in the conversation, they pick up the phone and start talking to you. And relating it to everyday things that are happening in your life, not things that are necessarily associated to um, what you might call a kind of mejar life in London. All of that stuff is really useful. And those are skills. And there's a performative aspect to that. But underneath all of that, people need to think that when you're... I'm thinking of the modern man here where I'm doing an interview. People need to think that when you're interviewing someone about something very difficult that's happened to them, you are them in that scenario. You are asking the question the listener wants to hear. You're channeling their thoughts. And for them to have that relationship with you, you mm. can't really fake that. Like they, they, they know enough about me that they trust mm. me to ask the questions on their behalf. And that's why it almost doesn't matter if we're covering a subject or an interviewee that's been done elsewhere because we're channeling them. It's for them. Um, and that's the thing that's really, really hard to, yeah. to just fake, basically. Because how do I know what my listeners want to know? I can only ask what I'm genuinely interested in. And over time, they'll filter themselves out as to whether they relate to that sort of thing. That's the point with the authenticity. So, the you know, when you use the word performative, there's an element of performance. There's an other kind of action associated w- with what you're doing. But the thing that works is when it's the intention is real. And also, you're just always thinking about the listener. And that's the other thing. So, I, I mean, on The Modern Man, for example, that show was partly created so that I could have lots of fun experiences. Uh, obviously, we're recording this during lockdown now, and <laughs> those experiences have all evaporated. But in usual times, um, you know, I get to travel the world meeting interesting people, trying interesting food and drink, going to beautiful places, talking about sex, hearing the latest music. This is all lifestyle stuff for me. Like, I've created that show so that I get to do that stuff because it's fun. But I need to constantly be thinking, although I'm here doing this because I'm enjoying it, I have a responsibility to the people that are listening to ask the questions they want to hear and to tell them the information the way they want to know it. And I think when you... Uh, and in, in, edit, in editing, answer me this, that was the biggest lesson of all, um, is just keep the audience in mind. What do the audience want to know? Does, is this piece of content relevant to them or is it just you, you know, wanking off? And really, really nail down that yeah. stuff that works and that has a, a real feeling of identification for the people listening. What's the future of podcasting, do you think? It's not going anywhere. Um, I thought, honestly, that it might die in about 2011 um, because answer me this had really ridden that early peak and you know you mentioned the my dad wrote a porno guys uh with respect to them we did everything that my dad wrote a porno did 10 years before we did the live gigs we did the book deal uh, we did the paid for content and then 2011 happened and the world just carried on you know we didn't have careers doing it it was just one of the things we did and it was ticking along nicely but it didn't feel like it was going to explode it felt like it was a very slow steady upwards crawl um and so actually i did think well okay if we've done that if we've if, if people tell us that we've done this better than most other people in our position and yet we're still in this position then it's not everything we're telling people it is. And then Serial happened, basically. I mean, it's so tedious to keep going back to that moment, but it really was this huge watershed. You know, it was almost like the talkies coming in or something. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay, now there's a way that my grandma knows what a podcast is. 
And when that happened, since then, I really feel that we haven't looked back. And it's gone from being an upward climb to being a downward snowball, really. Because there's an audience now that you can give different ideas to. There are people to talk to in that audience. I'm not sure what the reason is, really. Our numbers haven't dramatically spiked. They actually they, they carried on with the momentum. But it's just that the whole business of podcasting became a thing that was taken seriously, particularly in the United States. There was advertisers. There was big money acquisitions. There were celebrities getting involved. And whilst all of that in many ways took away from the independent spirit of what we were doing in the first place, they gave the platform legitimacy, which makes it easier as you get older especially and you have your own responsibilities financially to carry on it gives you different ambitions it makes you think this is something that people understand this is something that people want this has a unique place so i think for me actually as much as any just sort of psychological momentum to keep going but also lots of services have propped up since as part of that momentum which have been really helpful i mean for me acast spotify getting into podcasts um, you know, these are things that I use every day. Yeah. So f- where can it go from here? It's exponential, the the rise of podcasting. Po- audiences are asking for different things. People are using them differently. Uh, you know, the podcasting courses that I run are all run, uh, they're businesses wanting an, an extra string to their bow. I've got, I'm doing a piece with the military soon. Uh, you know, it's an, they're not gr- trying to grow a community outside of the military, but they're trying to to give their soldiers something to listen to that's relevant to them. That's interesting. You know, this, the, the podcast has become a string to the bow of most most businesses, most corporations. Mm. It's extraordinary. Yeah. I think what's really interesting, though, is that the demographic isn't fundamentally shifting for a lot of shows. So one of the reasons that Answer Me This is still able to do so well from our audience contributing financially and in terms of just download numbers is because we did get them when they were 18 and they're now 30 and that's the generation that is still consuming a lot of podcasts they've stayed with you i wonder how many 18 year olds now are interested in what we're doing and yes i know there's been a lot about millennials and especially people who are previously marginalized people of color and more young women and all this sort of thing getting into podcasting yes but that's as much as anything because it's a low barrier to entry i do wonder whether in their hearts a lot of those people really want to be on youtube Um, and so i think there's definitely a continuing onward momentum for the sort of roughly 30 year age demographic who's always listened to podcasts is my feeling who are now about 30 years old 30 to 55 and in the next 20 years they're going to be 50 to 75 great but i don't know if underneath that podcasting really is the thing i think the technology you know just ever becomes cheaper faster different and you know there'll be something else um but i think podcasting is now part of that ecosystem you can't get rid of it so that's that's why when you said what's happening next my answer is but it's not going anywhere i think it's now part of that and as you say it's an add-on for everybody but i don't know if it's going to get bigger 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 um everyone who works in the industry thinks it is but everyone who works in the industry is about 40 years old so it just makes me wonder what happens next as a tech geek because you are or at least somebody who knows a lot about tech is there something that's coming up that could take or be have a similar kind of impact as the podcast? One thing that I was quite excited about, which for some reason everyone else in podcasting isn't yet, and I think it's because they hate Facebook, is Libra. Uh, from a financial point of view, 
it seems to me that if what I've just said about demographics of podcast listening is broadly true, your average listener is kind of 40 and so are the people who are making the shows, then they are all on Facebook. Whether or not there's replenishers coming up underneath is irrelevant. And if Facebook can make it so that people are listening on Facebook, which I, I suspect might be part of the next strategy because that's what Spotify are doing and Facebook aren't just going to sit by and let Spotify take everything. If they start making audio as central to their platform as they did for video and then they introduce a financial mechanism where effectively as easily as pressing like, you can send me a pound for listening to my show, that to me does seem transformative because, yeah, it's very kind of you to say that beer money is a clever system and it's kind of matey and friendly and whatever, but the conversion rate is low. I mean, you know, on Answer Me This and on The Modern Man, you're looking at 1% of our audience giving us money at any point. And obviously, if you've got an audience of 150,000, then that 1% is still quite valuable. But if on Facebook you could get to 30% of that audience giving you a pound, then obviously that's substantially more valuable. And so I do wonder if there's something about digital currency. You know, Bitcoin is still so nerdy in the way that podcasting was in 2006, but I do wonder if there's something in digital currency and the convergence of that with social media and audio. I don't know what, but something that could make that whole system so much more straightforward. And even though you would be donating money really through an increased corporate layer of Facebook, I think people wouldn't feel like that. They'd feel the intimate connection because it's social of me as an individual. Um, and I suspect that might be something that again just pivots the industry a little maybe away from sponsorship because why do i need to talk about mattresses when i can just get paid for giving you the thing you're interested in thanks for listening you can buy the book how to start and grow a podcast by me jilly smith featuring all the interviews in this podcast at any bookshop or go to jillysmith.com and click on the bookshop tab and join me next week when i talk to bbc sounds and radio 4 producer georgia cat about her award-winning series the missing crypto queen.